Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. It's Pride Month. And today on the show, we're discussing LGBTQ plus issues in reproductive medicine. Joining us today is Dr. Mark Leandyers, who is medical director and founder RMA of Connecticut and founder of Gay Parents-to-Be, and Dr. Molly Moravec, an assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, and the Department of Urology at Michigan Medicine at the University of Michigan. Thank you both so much for being able to be on the show today. Thank you very much, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Thank you. So I want to open with a question for you both. In what ways can physicians make a practice more welcoming to LGBTQ plus patients? Maybe I'll just get started on this because, you know, it's something that we've worked really hard on over the years. So, you know, I think a infertility practice is built historically over the needs of a heterosexual couple. But it turns out, you know, the vast majority of same-sex couples need access to fertility care. And making your practice friendly to them really needs to start from the, the ground up. So when somebody answers the phone with a female voice, you can't automatically ask them for their husband's financial information. When they walk in your office, there should be some acknowledgments in the waiting room that they exist, whether that be perhaps a, a rainbow flag on the door and some LGBTQ magazines prominently posting your patient bill of rights that you don't you know, discriminate on, on sexuality or gender preference. And then same thing, the person at the front desk can't automatically assume they have an opposite sex partner. And, you know, some other really kind of easy changes is to really work hard to have all single-use bathrooms be labeled as multi-use bathrooms for everyone, right? And it can be really challenging for your providers, your medical assistants, your doctors to know who's who. So, you know, in our electronic medical record, we color code people a little bit. So we know because you don't want to be seeing a, um, a mom-to-be with a female partner for morning monitoring and uh, and say, oh, you look like you're ready. Okay to go home and have sex with your partner because that's basically, you know, open mouth, insert foot, right? And it's really tough for the medical assistants to kind of draw blood. They're trying to chit chat. You know, you don't want to ask, you know, a man sitting down there getting his blood drawn, perhaps for FDE bloods for sperm prior preservation, how long have you and your wife been trying? So, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to do this right. I think there's a, we have a practice has worked hard on sensitivity training. We include in our annual training, LGBTQ competency, and there's some very good programs out there. So Molly, what are your thoughts? So I agree. And it's something that I think I've become more enlightened to uh, from a from a colleague in recent years, that it's it's not enough to just, you know, have on your website, you know, LGBTQ patients welcome, right? It's not enough. Like the patient needs to see from the moment they walk through the door that this wasn't just some statement on the website as much as it is a true understanding and a true welcoming. And so I, you know, I definitely agree with everything that Mark said. I come from a bigger health system. And so we've actually implemented um, training across the health system. So for the security guards, for the 
for the greeters, um, you know, everybody across the entire health system now has to do this training. Um, because as Mark said, even if you as a provider, you know, do everything right, if an MA calls uh, just, for example, a transgender individual by their wrong name, the, the visit's lost. You've lost that patient's trust. You've lost their faith in your practice to take good care of them. And so I think, I think it really starts at the door. Some other things that we've done in our medical record is that we let patients fill out a form if they want to. The patients don't have to, um, but it has a lot about gender identity and preferred names and sexual orientation and organs that you have, um, again, to, to prevent people from saying something that's going to that's gonna accidentally insult someone. And, and now we have little stickers that print, you know, that get put on patient's charts or that's where the MA calls the patient from the waiting room with, and it prints their preferred name rather than maybe their legal name. And so that has helped us a lot as well. You mentioned transgender adolescents, and we were talking a little bit before we got the recording going today. What seems to be the bigger issues here with transgender adolescents? Dr. Leon Dyers, can you speak to this? I think the issue for transgender adolescents is it's really hard for them to be them presently. Um, a lot of times they have parental support, sometimes they do not, and they really need our support as providers. And they are a special subset of patients, and I think they need almost at least in my practice, they need a special subset of people kind of walking them through and helping them through because they're teens and young adults and they, they have a lot of uh, things that they're processing at the same time. And, you know, we work with our local um, LGBTQ center and a couple local select providers to, to make sure the trans patients that, that, that we do see are kind of, you know, almost VIP through the practice. Um, because they're they're young and they need the extra support and they're they are special. Certainly, Molly's practice is uh, a lot more focused on trans youth, and I'm sure she can uh, teach all of us the things that they've done there at Michigan. Yeah, you know it's tough because you're dealing with two things, right? You're as, as Mark already mentioned, um, this is a youth who is still kind of figuring out who they are and who supports them, right? Because um, not everyone in their life will support them. But at the same time, they're still just an adolescent, you know, cisgender or transgender. A lot of our adolescents are uncomfortable with talks about reproduction or whether they want kids in the future, talks about gametes or genitals. And so I think it's, you know, it adds this extra layer of complexity when talking to these patients to make them comfortable, to not make them embarrassed, to know what you can and can't talk about in front of their parents, to know who they're out to, to not out them if they're not out to everybody. Um, it becomes, it becomes incredibly complex. And so, you know, I think some things we do, and this applies to everyone, not just adolescents, but, you know, we've tried to have really inclusive intake forms that sort of allow for all gender identities, all sexual preferences, single people. There's no assumptions made. Um, you know, we just say partner in parentheses, if applicable, you know, because some people don't have a partner at all. So I think that helps um, particularly our trans youth feel like they're in a place where they don't have to have a partner, where they don't have to, you know, necessarily have a specific gender identity. They can click non-binary, they can click other. And then just really keeping in mind how sensitive physical exams are for a lot of these trans kids. And, and honestly, the, the transgender non-binary populations, um, even some adults have a really hard time with exams, but the youth especially have a really hard time with exams. And so really allowing for that taking time. I let them, you know, look at the ultrasound probes, touch the ultrasound probes. You know, we try to use transabdominal monitoring when we can instead of transvaginal monitoring. You know, we offer testicular aspiration for kids who aren't comfortable masturbating to, to create a semen sample. Um, you know, so just really making sure that every option is out there, everything you can do possible to make 
these youth feel comfortable in your clinic because they already feel uncomfortable, right? Just by virtue of being an adolescent. And then to be a transgender adolescent on top of that, um, I think definitely adds a layer. Um, and I think also just, just pre-counseling, right? What's going to happen? What can you expect? You know, so particularly if we're bringing a transmasculine youth through, through egg freezing, you know, we have to counsel them that your estrogen levels will go up during this and, and what might you notice and, and what does the literature tell us about what might happen afterward. And so um, in our practice, we use letrozole to try to keep the estrogen levels as low as possible, but they still elevate. And these kids who uh, maybe you've never had a period before now have a period. And so we have to talk about that and how that might be distressing. And we have to talk about how they may notice some um, chest sensitivity that they haven't experienced before and that will likely regress on testosterone therapy. But I think a lot of it is expectation setting so that things aren't alarming when they happen. I think that uh, Molly brings up something that we can all do better across the band and all of our reproductive practices is telling the patient what to expect on their visit. And that uh, um, comes down to, you know, the people who are doing the patient intakes and the patient who are booking the appointment. They, while they might not have the, uh, um, know exactly what's gonna happen, I think they can be trained on, on being very sensitive to treating um, everybody as an individual, letting them be themselves. And, you know, we, we're in Pride Month, and, and Pride isn't really just about, I, I, the way I think about it, Pride is Month is not just about LGBTQ anymore. Pride Month is being proud of who you are. So we want everybody who walks through the, the door, you know, whether it be a heterosexual couple or a single mom to be, single dad to be, coupled, same-sex couple, trans youth, to feel comfortable being themselves. And, and that has to start with the person who answers the phone or picks up the intake form that was, was mailed in. And so, and I think we all have continued work to do that. And I do think it's, it's okay because we will make mistakes, but the question is how do you deal with that, that mistake and, uh, and, and addressing it openly and being able to uh, gain that, that trust back for that particular patient. I totally agree with that point. We are very fast to say, I'm sorry, you know, and, and that's all you can really say sometimes. Um, you know, I'm sorry that that should not have happened. We this is what we're doing to make sure that doesn't happen again. But but it does happen. And and I think the last thing I would bring up is also just making sure that you know all options are open, right? I, I have this slide in the talks I give that the title says "Assume Not," you know. And so especially with the transgender youth, some of them they don't 100% know who they might want to have children with someday or what organs that person may have. And so I think allowing for all possibilities, really for everyone, but I think it, it's, it's extra uh, important for these youth who really haven't figured out their sexuality, their parental desire, you know, these things uh, necessarily is to allow for all options, you know, so we talk a lot about, so if you end up with a partner that has a uterus and is willing to carry a pregnancy, you know, then you will need donor sperm and this is what will happen. If you end up with a partner, you know, and we have these conversations a lot and we do, um, uh, Mark briefly alluded to it earlier, but so we, we end up doing FDA testing on these youth, especially if they don't know. I mean, some youth are very clear, obviously, on who they are and who they're attracted to and who they want to be with, but some are not. And so those who are not, you know, we just end up doing the FDA testing to make it much easier for them in the future should they need um, a gestational carrier or, you know, some sort of third-party reproduction that would require that testing. Have you looked at ASRM member benefits lately? ASRM is consistently adding value for physicians and other professionals in the field of reproductive medicine. Boost your career with access to ASRM's cutting-edge journals, free continuing education credits, access to ASRM QBoost, discounts on the annual Congress, and so much more. 
To learn more about the benefits of ASRM membership, visit www.asrm.org. What is some success that you both have found in trying to, one, get the information out to parents to get adolescents in the door? What are some successful ways that you both have found that you can share right now with other professionals who will want to expand out? So for for our and our, our local area, our successes have been to connect with the local resources, the local you know LGBTQ center. And in our local area, there is a uh, center that that is the place where people who might be looking for information of um, transitioning, where they start and they go. And also our marketing liaison as part of visiting the OBGYN practices also makes it very clear that, that, that we're more than welcoming and willing to see people who are curious about what to do and, and how to access care. But I will tell you that we, as a reproductive medicine practice, and I don't, I can't, I don't know what Molly's practice do, we don't prescribe out um, hormones for transitioning. There, there are there are some select providers in our community that we defer that to. We're really mostly focused on uh, um, preserving their reproductive options in, in the future, and also, you know, sharing the fact that while while they might not make a decision right now, the doors open for them to make decisions later, oftentimes as well. But really, keeping all all the doors open and. Uh, Um, hopefully making them feel comfortable to come back at any time to talk again. I agree. And that word of mouth gets out, right? Um, Both ways, positive and negative. If someone had a positive experience in your clinic or a or negative experience in your clinic, especially the younger patients, they're all on social media and blogs and, you know, um, they have these, these online communities and so word gets out quickly. Um, And so I think that is, that is one way, you know, in our practice, we do prescribe gender affirming hormones as well. So I, I think that gives us a little, street cred for lack of a better way to put that, you know, just that uh, we understand the hormones behind it. We understand as much as we can about what those hormones do. And so I think that does make people feel more comfortable coming to our clinic. And I guess for us, probably different from Mark is again, we're part of a big institution. And so the the gender affirming surgeons are my colleagues at Michigan. And so, um, uh, and we have a very well-established fertility preservation program with a coordinator who's happy to call um, these families and kind of talk to them as as we were talking about before, to sort of prepare them for what's going to happen when they come in. And then sometimes they choose not to, and, and that's okay too. Dr. Leon Dyers, you, you mentioned that you offer professional and personal development regularly for your staff. And it sounds like also just for anybody within that area. Is there anything currently on a national level available for physicians who, who would look to also establish, you know, to start to get this sort of regular program for their staff going? Yeah, so um, the Human Rights Campaign has a scorecard, so to speak, where you get a healthcare quality leader stamp um, or that you're working as hard as you can and has different tiers with it. And within that, there's a, there's a bunch of uh, um, informational um, programs and teaching programs that you can provide to staff. And uh, there's also the Fenway Institute, which is located in Boston that has a lot of uh, educational and teaching opportunities that you can access for your staff. There are, um, through Family Equality Council, so Family Equality Council is is kind of a, um, a 501c3 um, arm of the LGBTQ community that provides resources for our families, and they have actually a, you know, a certification process for um, REI practices. 
and I can't remember, but I think they require at least 50% of your employees to go through um, a, a set of training, which takes some time um, to basically, you know, increase their, their cultural competence in regards to LGBTQ issues. Um, it is a very nice program, and um, we have done that. So there's a lot of different ways to get into it. I think that uh, um, there's also some professional educators that can simply come and do some talks to your your practice to uh, bring everybody on on board, so to speak. And I think that, uh, and I'll speak that for for my practice that uniformly, I think all of us want to do our best job. Nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings, and we all want to be able to work together. But we just you just might not know. So getting the word out there, either through HRC, the Fenway, or Family Quality Council, and looking at those resources, and certainly you could um, back, you could contact me through through ASRM. I, we can I can put you in touch with any or, or all of those. I think is is important um, as we all increase our cultural competence, and that has to go across the board, not only LGBTQ um, plus, but also you know for people of color and and so on. There there's just so much. Um, cultural uniqueness out there, and uh, um, and there's different communities that that we all want to serve and serve better. I would echo that, and something that <clears throat> Mark and I have been working on uh, as part of our roles in the in the board of the LGBTQ SIG is um, possibly working on some ASRM practice guidelines um, to really kind of go from the bottom and build up for practices that that like Mark said, obviously nobody wants to insult anybody. Nobody wants someone to feel uncomfortable in their clinic, uh, but sometimes they just don't know how um, to make it better. And so certainly um, some practice guidelines I think could really help our members too. The ASRM would like to invite you to save the dates for the ASRM 2021 Scientific Congress and Expo to be held October 17th through the 20th in Baltimore, Maryland. The 2021 Congress and Expo will kick off with the ASRM President's Gala, followed by three full days of live, in-person plenaries, symposia, interactive sessions, roundtables, and a robust exhibit hall. At the conclusion of the live Congress, on-demand offerings of select sessions will become available through the end of December 2021. Registration opens soon, so look for an email from us in your inbox. Dr. Moravec, is there anything else that you would like our listeners uh, to know about what we're discussing today? I think the only last thing that I would add since we've started talking about education um, is just to remember while it's always okay to apologize or ask a patient, you know, what pronouns they would prefer, what terminology they prefer, it's really not okay to make our patients teach us about themselves. Um, and so just a, a reminder um, that uh, particularly, I know, I, again, I work more with the trans population, so particularly that population, you know, they, they find it frustrating that they have to teach so many of their physicians about who they are and what they need. Um, and so really just a plug for us to, to work on better education, educating ourselves rather than relying on our patients to do so. I think I would echo that. And, uh, you know, I would tell you over the, of the time that I've um, met Molly and worked with her through ASRM, the LGBTQ special interest group, my competency on trans issues has increased. So there is information out there. And I think, uh, you know, as we move through Pride Month and the rest of the year, I mean, love makes a family. Your your gender preference and all those things don't doesn't necessarily change your dis people's desire to be a parent. 
So I think we just have to remember all those things as we move forward in reproductive medicine as we're committed to allowing people the option to be a parent if they so choose. I want to thank both of my guests uh, for being with us today. And I, I hope that we can get you back both on soon so we can continue this conversation because I, I along with, with listeners, it's an incredibly large topic and it's always incredibly informative. And on behalf of ASRM, we, we thank both of you for being able to take time out today uh, to come talk to us about this. Thanks so much, Jeff. I, I really appreciate you guys um, uh, picking this topic to be part of part of your series. Thank you so much, Jeff, and uh, everybody out there. Have a wonderful day. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you currently get your podcasts. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.